Today in Science from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Here's today's spoken edition of Wired. Fukushima's other big problem, a million tons of radioactive water, by Vince Beiser. The tsunami-driven seawater that engulfed Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant has long since receded, but plant officials are still struggling to cope with another dangerous flood. The enormous amounts of radioactive water the crippled facility generates each day. More than one million tons of radiation-laced water is already being kept on site in an ever-expanding forest of hundreds of hulking steel tanks. And so far, there's no plan to deal with them. The earthquake and tsunami that hammered Fukushima on March 11, 2011, triggered meltdowns in three of its six reactors— that left messes of intensely radioactive fuel somewhere loose in the reactor buildings, though no one knows exactly where. What is known, however, is that every day as much as 150 tons of groundwater percolates into the reactors through cracks in their foundations, becoming contaminated with radioactive isotopes in the process. To keep that water from leaking into the ground or the Pacific, TEPCO, the giant utility that owns the plant, pumps it out and runs it through a massive filtering system housed in a building the size of a small aircraft hangar. Inside are arrays of seven-foot-tall stainless steel tubes filled with sand-grain-like particles that perform a process called ion exchange. Particles grab onto ions of cesium, strontium, and other dangerous isotopes in the water, making room for them by spitting out sodium. The highly toxic sludge created as a byproduct is stored elsewhere on the site in thousands of sealed canisters. This technology has improved since the catastrophe. The first filtering systems installed just weeks after the disaster by California-based Curion Incorporated, which has since been bought by Veolia, a French resource management company, only caught cesium, a strong gamma radiation emitter that makes it the most dangerous of the isotopes in the water. The tubes in those arrays were filled with highly modified grains of naturally occurring volcanic minerals called zeolites. By 2013, the company developed entirely artificial particles, a form of titanosilicate, that also grabbed strontium. The filters, however, didn't catch tritium, a radioactive isotope of hydrogen. That's a much trickier task. Cesium and strontium atoms go into solution with the water, 
like sugar and tea, but tritium can bond with oxygen just like regular hydrogen, rendering the water molecules themselves radioactive. It's one thing to separate cesium from water, but how do you separate water from water? asks John Raymond, Curian's founder and now president of Veolia's Nuclear Solutions Group. The company claims to have developed a system that can do the job, but TEPCO has so far balked at the multi-billion dollar cost. So for now, the tritiated water is pumped into a steadily growing collection of tanks. There are already hundreds of them, and TEPCO has to start building a new one every four days. TEPCO has at least reduced the water's inflow. As much as 400 tons per day was gushing in just a couple of years ago. In an effort to keep the groundwater from getting in, TEPCO has built a network of pumps, and in 2016 installed an underground ice wall, a $300 million subterranean fence of 30-yard-long rods through which tons of sub-zero brine is pumped, freezing the surrounding earth, all of which helps, but hasn't solved the problem. Tritium is far less dangerous than cesium. It emits a weaker, lower-energy form of radiation. Still, all that tritiated water can't just be stored indefinitely. Some of those tanks and pipes will eventually fail. It's inevitable, says Dale Klein, a former head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission who has been consulting with TEPCO since the early days following the disaster. In fact, hundreds of tons of water leaked out of the tanks in 2013 and 2014, sparking an international outcry. TEPCO has since improved their design. Klein, among others, believes that the concentrations of tritium are low enough that the water can safely be released into the sea. They should dilute and dispose of it, he says. It would be better to have a controlled release than an accidental one. But the notion of dumping tons of radioactive water into the ocean is understandably a tough sell. Whatever faith the Japanese public had left in TEPCO took a further beating in the first couple of years after the meltdowns, when several investigations forced the company to acknowledge they had underreported the amount of radiation released during and after the disaster. Japan's fishing industry raises a ruckus whenever the idea of dumping the tritiated water is broached. They already have to contend with import restrictions imposed by neighboring countries worried about eating contaminated fish. Japan's neighbors, including China, Korea, and Taiwan, have also objected. For now, all TEPCO can do is keep building tanks and hope that someone comes up with a solution before they run out of room or the next earthquake hits. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.